Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Kirk Bowman will join us to discuss global philanthropy. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the inequities in the world call for philanthropic solutions, but too often many of these projects can cause more harm than good. Is there another way? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Kirk S. Bowman. Dr. Bowman is a professor in the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Co-founder and director of the international NGO Rise Up and Care, he has written books including Lessons from Latin America, Innovations in Politics, Culture, and Development, and together with co-author John Wilcox has penned the new book, Reimagining Global Philanthropy, the Community Bank Model of Social Development. Dr. Bowman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. It's my pleasure. You, know, you start your own book with stories looking at how some of these efforts have failed, a different model for these types of philanthropic efforts. I worked on a project in Fiji with a bunch of scientists for about a decade, and my job was the local development part of the overall project. We had lots of money and really smart people, and we were going to help the little communities of coastal Fiji with some terrific development projects. And we went in guns a-blazing with great partners and lots of money and good local stakeholders and really well-thought-out ideas. And all of our ideas ended up failing. They were real disasters. And we were surprised because we were so convinced we were going to help these villages in coastal Fiji. And I had a banker on the board of directors of a nonprofit that we used for these projects and one day he looked at me, he said, of course, these are going to fail because they're startups and startups fail 90, 95 percent of the time. And so we started to look around at other projects to try and find what were the successful ones. And we discovered that nearly all of these projects that were initiated from do-gooders from Western Europe or the United States ended up either being zombie project or failed projects and very often did much more harm than good. And so we started to think about trying to look at this from a different perspective, which is how community banks look at their projects. And we borrowed the community bank model in order to try and ramp up the impact of global philanthropy. What is the community bank model? The community bankers have a very interesting life. I'm not a banker. My partner is a banker. And community banks have to succeed about 98% of the time in order to make money. So they have to really have every loan return on the investment and succeed. And so we're trying to think if, if these startups in global philanthropy fell 75, 80, 90% of the time, how could we take this model and ramp up to 90, 95, 98% of the time like community banks? And they have two really big secrets. 
The first is they do no startups. So for a community bank to lend money and they need to get that 98% of the time return, they're going to identify leaders or businesses or borrowers that have a real long track record of success. And they're going to lend to people and not tell them what to do. They're going to find people who they believe in and lend them that money. And so that's what we did with Global Philanthropy with a 32-case demonstration project in Brazil, is we would identify community leaders who had a 10-year track record of success of transforming their communities in the favelas and most difficult neighborhoods in Rio de Janeiro. And then we would just give them expansion money to do more of what they're already doing. And since they have that long track record of success, they can employ this money rapidly, effectively, and with really tremendous impact. It's an approach which utilizes people who are more on the ground. They know their community. They know what the community needs. They have experience, more importantly, which may be lacking in global philanthropy efforts where it's people just coming in trying to impose their idea of what should work. What we do in the book is we trace this philosophy of philanthropy all the way back to Kipling's White Man's Burden. And we make the claim that global philanthropy is just white man's burden with perhaps better language and not quite as extreme, but it has the same view that we, the educated, innovative, high-technology people of the global north, we are the leaders, we are the innovators, we are the high achievers, and we are going into the global south, and we're going to look for local partners, local sidekicks, local stakeholders to implement our great ideas. And that really is demeaning and backwards and doomed to a lot of failures, when in fact, within these communities, there are really incredible innovators and leaders already on the ground. And locals in these communities, especially the young people, they need role models and superheroes that look like they do. They don't need some kind of a role model or superhero that looks like me. And so our idea was to really celebrate and elevate these local leaders who know their communities and know what they need and know how to innovate to get things done. One of the stories we always tell is this young man named Sebastian who was in a juvenile detention center from age seven to 17. And when he came out, he started a badminton training center for youth, um, and he ended up using samba dancing to train the kids and turn them into the champions of Brazil and create four Olympians from a man who never played badminton but knew how to motivate the young people in this community. Really effective philanthropic change is more grassroots. Why hasn't this approach percolated throughout the global philanthropy community? Yeah, one of the things we do in the book, Reimagining Global Philanthropy, is we talk about the history of philanthropy and how the incentive structure was created through the tax code, with the internet, with inequality, with 501c3s, etc., where the incentive is not to be an anonymous sidekick or help others, even if there's a lot greater success. The incentive is for us to be in the alumni magazine to be celebrated on social media. And that comes from coming up with and 
developing and implementing our own projects. So there is this strong incentive out there to keep up with this white man's burden form of global philanthropy and not to treat the leaders of the global south as the superheroes and us in the global north as the sidekick. And I would like to really quickly tell your listeners that at our website for the book, which is reimagine.care, we have a series of documentary films about the different groups that we work with that were co-directed by Katya Lund, who was one of the co-directors of City of God. I mean, there also are two-minute trailers of the different groups, and you can really get an idea for the type of leadership and community spirit and innovation that these uh, local superheroes heroes have. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your, your own NGO, Rise Up and Care, as the demonstration project. Yeah, so we started a 501c3 Rise Up and Care, and we, as the board of directors, pay 100% of all the administrative costs so that all the donations or income that we generate from books and lectures, etc., 100% of that go to these local leaders that are down there. It's, it's a very small organization. We don't have an office or a secretary. We try to keep our overhead to a, an exact minimum. And we've been very fortunate to have a very dedicated and creative group of Georgia Tech students who essentially are running the nonprofit through a vertically integrated project at the Georgia Institute of Technology. One of the other issues that you talk about is how impact is assessed in changing our view of what we think of as an impactful philanthropic project. Yeah, so th this really starts at MIT. So a bunch of economists at MIT who won the Nobel Prize last year for coming up with randomized impact assessment of interventions for development. And it's really quite remarkable what they do, but the cost of these are at least $100,000 to $150,000. I mean, it takes a lot of training and expertise to do them. And even then, there's a lot of discussion about whether they're really appropriate. And so USAID and funders and donors have embraced this type of impact assessment, and we'll give a $25,000 grant and ask circus clown or a badminton instructor to carry out this type of assessment that in the end, it's impossible for them to actually do. So we have a chapter on how to take something that we think is done as a kind of a disciplinary action because we really deep down don't trust brown people in poor neighborhoods of the global south. And so we saddle them with this impact assessment, thinking that we'll keep them honest, when in fact we're just really demoralizing them and they should be spending their time at what they have the best skill set at, which is helping young people in their organizations and not in doing PhD level statistics and in the end, they just make up numbers and do the best they can. So we come up with a harmonious model of impact assessment that we think will not only keep the spirits high of these community leaders, but also be a much better assessment of the overall impact. In the end, it really comes down to the people that are involved and in having the superhero philanthropists at the top. How do you end getting the right people on board? 
Yeah, that's the, one of the biggest questions that we have. And that's why we use in the book, we have these different strategies used by community bankers. The first is they find partners with this long track record of success, but then they also have people through referrals and others that have high character. So if you have someone in a favela who's been running a community center successfully or an organization for a decade, you can talk to the different people in the community. They will know that person. And once you find one, then you're very likely to find others through that individual, through what community bankers would call referrals. There are also all sorts of organizations out there like Rise Up and Care, like Global Giving, and many others who do all this vetting, who find these organizations, and you can choose based on the region that you are interested in or the type of intervention, whether it be gender issues or the environment or high-performance activities for youth, and your money will go directly to those organizations. But you can start in your own neighborhood or as you travel, um, if you open your eyes, you will find that there are really a lot of these organizations existing. Powers in the sense that can find groups, individuals that can make the greatest impact at the same time a little more complicated is that there aren't sort of those umbrella organizations where you just go, oh, I'll just give my money there. Yeah, I, I think that it becomes really interesting with our students. We're doing some projects in Puerto Rico, and a lot of the fun was actually finding them and finding them through the internet or we know professors who have a background in Puerto Rico, et cetera. And it actually can be really exciting to say, we want to work with a women's organization in a really difficult, marginalized neighborhood in Puerto Rico that uses some kind of sports. And in the end, we've identified this organization, La Perla, that uses MMA and boxing and has a lot of women and girls in this organization. And then you get to send them an email or a letter or a book, and you, you really start to have a much less cynical view of the world as you find all of these people who are doing such incredible things in their local neighborhoods. And also, well, it's worth noting that sometimes the first place to look is right in our own neighborhoods here in the United States. Sometimes we overlook our, our own backyard and effort should be spent there as well. That's correct. And they're much easier to identify and to make an impact. And if I can say one more th other thing, we talk about a lot of the reasons why your impact is so much higher with this community bank model than with the white man's burden model. One is since they're existing organizations, all of their fixed costs are already covered and they're already fully operating. So a little bit of money can make a big impact and it can make that impact immediately. Do you think people are becoming more aware of this model of global philanthropy? I do. And Mackenzie Scott, for example, is taking this kind of model in her philanthropic giving in the United States and getting both praise and pushback because she doesn't require a 350-page application because she sees that that can often be really burdensome and not that useful. And she identifies organizations and activities largely in the United States that have this long track record of success. And she has had this philosophy of just getting them money and having them use that money effectively and quickly. So from the very top, like Mackenzie Scott, 
And now with places like Global Giving and Rise Up and Care, and in talking to our students who have participated in a lot of mission trips and volunteerism, and they start to see that that is not very impactful, I think that this view of global philanthropy is starting to pick up steam. What do you imagine then is the future for global philanthropy? Where do you see it heading and what do you think it's going to take to reimagine it in this model? Well, we have these two important moments in time right now. One, we have the recognition of the tremendous amount of implicit cognitive bias that we have towards race and sexuality and all sorts of cognitive bias. And we end the book talking about the cognitive implicit bias that we've used in philanthropy about who are the leaders and who are the innovators and who are the superheroes. And then the other one, of course, in the post-COVID world, hopefully soon post-COVID world, or at least endemic COVID world, the need for impact is greater than ever. And so I think this is a really rich time for people thinking about helping in these local communities in the global south and for identifying local superheroes and celebrating them and using them to expand the good works that they're doing. We were just talking with Professor Kirk Bowman, together with co-author John Wilcox, has penned the new book, Reimagining Global Philanthropy, the Community Bank Model of Social Development. Professor Bowman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Charles, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.